Hello and welcome. You're listening to The Toddcast, The Teacher Podcast, an informative podcast that explores a variety of teaching and educational experiences while still offering insights into improving and upskilling teachers. Join your host, Todd Broadbent, as he explores the wide and varied lives of educators from every sector, exploring fundamental concepts that are pivotal to good teaching, while also discussing the lighter side of the educational sector. Welcome to the Toddcast, the teacher podcast. For the 51st episode of the Toddcast, the teacher podcast, I had the wonderful opportunity of interviewing Georgia Bell. Georgia has been teaching for seven years, all of which have been in special education in the Shepparton area. Recently, Georgia studied and completed her Masters around Applied Behaviour Analysis and is now a Board Certified Behaviour Analyst at her school, which is a wonderful achievement. Throughout this episode, Georgia will be sharing her educational journey, the reasons why she decided to become a teacher, the greatest challenge and proudest moment as a teacher, where did the passion for special education come from, key teaching tips and strategies when teaching special education, key ways and strategies to find out how to best cater for each student's individual needs, does curriculum prepare her students for 18+, plus? the importance of life skills and what they do at her school, what is a behaviour analyst, what do they do, how do they support school students and teachers, what does her behaviour analyst role look like at her school, top tips to make changes and modification to a student's behaviour and so much more. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello Georgia, welcome to the Toddcast, the teacher podcast, how are you? Yeah, really good, Todd. I'm very excited to be on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to having a chat about your teaching career so far. So uh, yeah, I've been really looking forward to this chat, so can't wait to get into it. Me too. I'm very excited. Thank you so much for having me on. Too easy. So Georgia, have you had a highlight of the day today? Yeah, well, my Wednesday looked a bit different today. I'm normally out of the classroom, but now in the classroom teaching in the role that I'm in that we'll talk about a little bit more later on. But um, today we had most of the day was planning. So we have collaborative planning groups and we have new staff coming on um, within our collaborative planning group at the moment. So it was teaching the new staff how we plan at the school that I'm at. So that was actually a highlight of the day because to share the knowledge with other teachers is yeah, exciting and it's something new for them and welcoming them into the upper middle years group where I work. So yeah, that was probably the highlight of my day today. Yeah, excellent. Love that. And then going back to when you're a student, what were you like, Georgia? Well, thinking back, the first thing that came to mind for me was cruised through my schooling years. I don't think I was one that like tried really hard and I wasn't the one that didn't try at all. But I was like the one in the middle that seemed to get by. Like I did, I was enthusiastic about learning and I wanted to participate and I did like want to be a teacher's pet in a way. But then thinking into the secondary schooling years, I think like sometimes I was like, I don't know how I passed that exam. I didn't really, I don't think I tried really hard, but I got through it pretty well. And I um, found that that's how I cruised through my schooling years went with the crowd a little bit I didn't like stand out not a big personality I kind of kept to my little group and went along with that I did enjoy the academic side of schooling um, don't get me wrong and I enjoyed the social side as well I really enjoyed that moving through my school report said I went back and had a look at the general comment part I made my dad take a photo and send it to me last night Love this. and it said participates with enthusiasm reliable I'm like sounds like me and helpful which I think is a side that 
I've kept like that quality, I guess I've kept moving into my career now in special education is that I am helpful and I do want to get myself out there and help those around me and the students that I work with. And I always like thinking back, I always applied for like the leadership roles and never got them. <laughs> like I was always the one that they were like, oh, you were so close, but that person just did it better. <laughs> like, so I always wanted to go to school captain, all of those type of roles. And I always applied and put myself out there, but I was like, always got like nipped at the post. Yeah. So yeah, that's how I look back on my schooling years as a student. No, fantastic. And I think great that you actually got a report. I think you're the first person to actually bring their report to the, the podcast. So I think that's yeah. fantastic. So I'll yeah. give you an A plus for bringing that to the, to the Thank table. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. And my dad, he went through all of my stuff. He's like, I'll find it for you. No, I love that. Good work, dad. And then do you have yeah. a favorite moment from school? Um, I couldn't think of a particular like one moment. I think I really enjoyed my years like 10, 11 and 12 at school. They were probably where I really enjoyed what I was doing. And actually the subjects I chose were ones that I was really interested in. And like my subject of psychology, I really enjoyed. And that's kind of links to what we'll talk about later in terms of behavior analysis. Um, I think that's where that kind of started that interest in behavior analysis and I also did a subject like vet community services which gave me the opportunity to work in special education before leaving secondary school as well so I think just those 10 11 and 12 years really cemented for me the path I was then going to follow beyond yeah high school so not a particular moment sticks out but I think yeah secondary school the end of it for me was my favorite favorite years yeah, beautiful. Love yeah. that. And then can you now tell me about yourself, your teaching journey and now what you're currently doing? Yeah, of course. So I started my schooling actually in Melbourne. Um, I did my first two years of schooling in Melbourne and then we moved to the Golden Valley. My family did for my dad's job. So we ended up coming back here, but my mum is from Tokemal. My dad's from Yoroa. So um, Shepparton was just, this area was always going to be somewhere I was going to come back to, I think anyway, but dad's job brought us here as well. So I started schooling here, my primary schooling after that from grade two onwards. And then primary school was Catholic education and high school was Catholic education as well. So I went through my schooling here, which, yeah, I really enjoyed. I never was the child that didn't want to come to school, I don't think, asking mum and dad. I think I was always enthusiastic about going. I also did ballet growing up. So I started that when I moved to the Golden Valley as well. So ballet was like my interest, which I actually got into teaching ballet when I was probably around 14, 13, 14 years old. I started teaching ballet additionally like on the side as my interest as well. So that was a love that I had outside of school and kept me busy um, as well every afternoon. So yeah, through the schooling, I did yeah, ballet and kept with my secondary schooling in Catholic education. And as I said before, vet community services. So that's where probably my start in special education happened and evolved from there. So we used to do a like a placement every like one afternoon a week with school. So we'd go out and everyone went to a different setting. So some people went into aged care, some people went into a mainstream primary school and I chose to go to a special education setting. Um, so that's where my kind of taste for special education came from. I really enjoyed that. The staff were amazing when we were coming in as a volunteer and working with the kids was something that just yeah really motivated me and I wanted to go back and do that each week so yeah I really really enjoyed that so actually what came from that was I hit year 12 and I thought oh I don't want to go straight to university like uh, I want to have a year off 
I feel like I need a bit of a break. So I actually went to the admin lady at um, the school that I was doing place, like the placement at. And she said, I asked her, I said, do you have any jobs going next year? And she was saying, well, we don't, but we can make one for you. And I'm like, oh yes, thank you so much. That's what I want. She's like, you're the right person for the job and we'll um, make it happen. So that's when a traineeship role opportunity came up. So I applied for that. And yeah, was super excited that I got that and was able to work within the special education setting for that full 12 months and full time. Because in my head, I'm like, I know this environment isn't a walk in the park. It's not easy, but it's something I think I want to do. So if I can last this year and love it and enjoy it, then this can be the career I can go into into the future so I didn't want to go in blind. I didn't want to do four years at uni and think, oh gosh, I've done the wrong thing here. And now I've got a 30 grand hex debt behind me. Yep. Um, I didn't want to make that mistake. So I thought this is going to give me the experience, cement this um, interest for me. And yeah, it really did. At the end of the year, I cried. <laughs> they, they do a speech and I just stood there and cried and said, I don't want to go. But I knew that I had to go, obviously. So I went to uni for four years in Bendigo and studied um, my bachelor in early childhood, but majored in special education. So I've got an early childhood degree, but did all the special ed subjects and the special ed placement at the end, which I ended up going back to the school that I did the traineeship at, at the end. So I thought, this is great. This is where I want a job. So I did get my last placement back at that school and then finished the placement and then a grad position opened there and conveniently. So I applied for that and then was successful. So I was really excited to jump back into that setting again and got a position in the early years unit. So we have at the school that I work at an early years unit, which is foundation aged up until like, like 10 years of age. And then they'll go into our middle years unit. We have lower middle years and an upper middle years group, and we also have senior years. So we're split into four sections. Um, and I has had that love for early childhood and love for the early years. That was my preference and I wanted to be there, um, which was exciting that there was a job opportunity in that area. So I yet yeah, really loved that. So I started there in 2017, was my grad year. And then the grad year wasn't easy. It never is for anyone, no. um, I don't think. And I don't think anyone would say it was a walk in the park. Um, I had a few really complex students in my grad year with complex behaviours of concern, which most in a special education setting, we do see that quite frequently, which tested the graduate in me, but I still loved it at the end of that year. It was a really um, fulfilling year. And then an op another opportunity came up. And so um, in my second year of teaching, I, well, I didn't actually find it myself, but my principal found an opportunity where they were uh, offering inclusive education scholarships to people working in the Department of Education um, to specialise in special ed. So they were going to pay for your university degree to get more people upskilled because we're just seeing obviously the challenges in our school settings and we're needing expertise in behaviour more and more. Um, so my principal came up to me and said, I've got the thing just for you. And I was like, I don't want to study again. <laughs> like I spent four years at uni. I've had one grad year. I don't need to go back to uni, but I just couldn't pass up the opportunity as well. I was like, if they're going to, if the department are going to provide this wonderful opportunity to pay for it for us, I was like, why not do it? 
So I then studied, I got that successfully, thank the Lord. So they accepted me into the program. And that's when I started my Masters of Applied Behaviour Analysis or ABA as the acronym. So I started that in 2018 part-time I wasn't doing it full-time as well as full-time teaching as a second year teacher so I did that from 2018 and finished in 2020 in the COVID year I finished and finished that course and then the department then like they had I guess had all of these people that had done the study but to become a behavior analyst you also need um, to do supervised field work so that you need to have a behavior analyst supervise you in the setting doing the work so you need 1500 hours logged with a behavior analyst so the department offered that opportunity for us as well so they hired a behavior analyst to oversee us so I did my supervised field work and I started that in 2020 so that was really exciting too so I did that after I did the study so I just kind of kept going I said why not just keep going keep studying do it while you're young as they say so that was yet yeah, really good. So I had Alison Chitty, who's a BCBA or a board certified behavior analyst. She supervised me alongside a few other supervisors as well. They all kind of shared because of COVID and people coming in and out of jobs and things like that. So that was really exciting that I had that opportunity um, because often you have to pay someone to do that for you, but the department did that. So that was yeah really exciting for us. So I did that in the background for a couple of years. It took me a while to get the 1500 hours on top of teaching everything else, but got that. And the other thing that I did at school is got the PBS teacher leader role at, within the school while I was doing this study because it just aligned perfectly with behavior analysis and that um, PBS on school-wide PBS framework and approach that we are implementing at the school I work at. So I was the PBS teacher leader for, uh, from 2019 to 2021. I also did the exam to become a behavior analyst. So there's like the masters, there's the 1500 hours, and then there's an exam that you have to complete and then you're done. And then you are a behavior analyst and practicing after that. So I did the exam last year in September. I passed that exam and became a board certified behavior analyst. So that was very exciting. I, the exams are monster of an exam and yeah you're staring at a screen for three hours so it was a, yeah, an achievement that I didn't think I had within me but it it worked in the end and I'd put in the work which was um, exciting so I passed that exam and then I also last year started the role that I'm in at the moment so at the school I'm at I'm the behavior and inclusion coach so that kind of all evolved from there and it kept kind of snowballing in a way uh, it sounds like a big snowball but um yes yeah, so that's where it's got to be in that role today amazing I think just everything you've just talked about George I think just in your short career what uh amazing opportunities you've had and so many opportunities to just keep progressing your career as well I think it's wonderful mm, yeah it's something that like I've always had a thirst for knowledge and a love for learning and always wanted to continue learning but I didn't think it would happen that quick like now I'm in my seventh year of teaching and I'm like didn't think I'd be where I am today. So I'm very lucky to have had those opportunities yeah, brought to me in a way. Like it's kind of something that I didn't think I was going to do, but in the end it was yeah, a really good decision. Yeah, yeah. I think it's amazing that you've also saying yes to those opportunities as well, because you could have easily have said no, but you've said yes to everything and, and it's helped you get to where you are now. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, no, it's yeah, exciting and has opened lots of doors. Which yeah, is good. yeah. No, excellent. And I guess you were talking about this before. So what was the reason you decided you wanted to be a teacher? 
Yeah, I think I've always had a like a maternal instinct about me. Like I think people would say that like I've always yeah worked well with children. I've been able to develop relationships with children quite quickly and been able to make the connections with children and they somewhat gravitate to me in an environment. So that was something that I always had within me growing up as a child. I think yeah my parents would vouch for that as well. And I think yeah in my ballet starting teaching there in so with my interest that's something that really got me started in teaching like I probably didn't think about it before I started actually ballet teaching that that's something I could do was stand in front of a group of people and tell them what to do and nurture them in that way and see them develop yes I think the ballet teaching side of things was probably where it first did start and I yeah I think it's just those natural relationships I was able to form I was like this is not easy for me but it's something that is yeah it's natural it's something that it just flows and I don't have to work hard at doing it yes I think I I just that's the way it kind of evolved for me to become a teacher and a lot of my friends were becoming teachers too so that was kind of a thing like in our age group like I do have a lot of friends now that are teachers um so I'm like yeah why not it sounds like a really good opportunity and that special education experience later in my schooling I'm like yeah this is something that I think I'd be quite good at yeah so yeah, yeah no, excellent. And then did you have any teachers throughout your schooling that inspired you? I couldn't think of a specific teacher, like looking back, like all my teachers were great, all nurtured me. I don't, I didn't have one. I was like, oh, like I didn't like them. Like they were all really great, um, the ones that I had. More teachers probably now that I'm working with in a way. Like mm. that's the way I like, looked at this question. I think I've had a lot of like the principal Jen Gill Kirkman is the principal. She's not the principal of the school I work at at the moment, but she was the one that kind of made me take that leap. And I don't think I would have seen that leap in myself being willing to take it. Someone of higher authority needed to tell me to take it in that moment. And I'm so glad that she did. And I, she was the first person I messaged when I passed the exam. I was like, thank you so much. You made me make that jump that I wasn't going to jump from the ground myself. So that was, yeah, she was probably the big influence on who I am as a teacher now. And probably like this seems cliche and like like people probably haven't said it before actually, but my dad growing up was probably my biggest teacher. He like had this thirst for knowledge, always wanted to know more about things and he never went to uni himself, but he's very much progressed within his career and yeah, moved very high up within Telstra when he was working, very clever himself. But he often says, I wish I could go back to uni now and I wish I could do that because back in the day he wasn't really that engaged in schooling and actually went to the Navy and went down a different path that way but he's like god I wish I could go back and try and that's always been something that's instilled in us that like just always had that thirst for knowledge or he said like just do the study it'll be quick and it'll be over and you've got it under your belt is what he would say Mm. to me so not necessarily the teacher writing my report but the teacher I've always had growing up yeah yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like a really great role model for you to how you've modelled your career, but also your life as well. Yeah, no, definitely a big influence upon yeah where I am today as well. Yeah, beautiful. And then what's been your greatest challenge as a teacher so far? I know it's only been a short career so far, but what's been your greatest challenge? I think like there's always many challenges as a teacher. Um, I think the workload is often one and you often hear and I've heard people within your podcast say like that work-life balance is really challenging to get it's for me accepting that I can't do it all there's always going to be something else you can do and you need to put that stop on it and be like no <laughs> like we don't need to actually go there 
so that's been a big one. Like you can't do it all and you have to, you have to turn off at some point and look after your own mental well-being and your physical well-being and your relationships with other people need to be prioritized. I think, yeah, when I first started as a graduate teacher and the teachers I had around me were wonderful, but they like were just like all in and that was their life. Like that they lived and breathed teaching, which isn't a bad thing. Like that's really like if you're very passionate about it, that's it. But I felt like that I went down that path because they did, because mm-hmm. they were my mentors and my models. And then looking back at it now, I'm like, oh, like it probably wasn't the best thing for me at the time. Like for yeah, your mental health and your well-being and looking after that. So yeah, that's one challenge I find. I think as a behavior analyst, you're often like you're often solving behaviors or looking at behaviors of concern and writing plans and looking to decrease the behaviors of concern and increase skill acquisition. And I think it's that you can't solve every problem like at once. You've got to really prioritize one thing and go down that path and do your best to see the small wins as you go. We're not going to drastically change it overnight. It's going to be a long process, but let's do it as a team. So that's been something as well that I found like don't feel like you have to solve everything at once because you're just going to overload yourself. And I think like that team, like a, a team approach is something that I've found obviously helps with that. Like you can't work in a silo in a school, especially within a special education, you can't work within a silo. So that's been, yeah. So having that team around you and not having to carry the load yourself. And I guess also in the special education space, we often talk about like we, are experiencing students that have complex needs and often complex behaviors of concern which at times can pose safety risks to themselves and others so we've been looking at as a school at the moment like the cumulative trauma and well-being side of things and prioritizing that that like when we're exposed to these things it is traumatic but we can work through this together and being open about it and talking about it has been probably a new thing that after COVID we've really focused on which is something Obviously, it may be different to a mainstream school challenge, but obviously still they have that aspect of those behaviours of concern there as well. But yeah, really addressing that trauma that you may be experiencing as a teacher, because if you're internalising it, it's just going to build up, build up until you can no longer work in the profession anymore. So that's a challenge that I think, especially as a behaviour analyst, that's something that we are exposed to. But yeah, seeing the behaviour objectively and yeah, not taking those things personally has, yeah, obviously been a challenge, but I think we're really coming out on the other side of that now, which is really good and working through those things as a a school, which is really nice. Yeah, excellent. Thanks for your honesty there. And uh, you mentioned a number of challenges, which is great, which as you kind of discussed, it's, it's not an easy gig to be a teacher, particularly for you in like in that special ed, it can be quite challenging with the behaviours and the different mm. you're having to deal with. So no, thanks for your honesty there, Georgia. And then on a bit more of a positive note, like what are some of the proudest moments as a teacher? Well, some of my proudest have been like seeing a student that I've taught out in the community. And some people as teachers probably think, oh, like when you see them in the supermarket, like, oh, like, like they don't think teachers belong in the supermarket um, and you, they hide from them. But I think that's probably one of the proudest movements as a special education teacher. If you see them out in the community and the people they're with are willing to take them out and experience that, be exposed to that, then you've done your job correctly. Like they've got the skills to be able to be in that setting and yeah function appropriately within that setting I think um, that's a major thing for our students and then often seeing like students that I work with 
that have these complex behaviors of concern move to another classroom and be really successful with someone else is really great. Like I love seeing that other people can work with a student. It's not just one person that has the strategies. Everyone's got the strategies and it's a collective, I guess, collective responsibility and collective approach that we have within the school I work at that that student can go to another teacher and still be successful. So that was another proudest moment, I think, as a teacher, being able to, yeah, see them succeed with other people is really exciting. I think that's a really good one because I know for us in like a mainstream school as well, like they have that teacher for one year and then they move and sometimes you can see that transition from one teacher to the other, it can be quite challenging, but it is, as you're saying, like it is great to see the ones that can move and transition quite nicely. And a lot of the work you put in place to be able to help them transition has been successful as well. So, oh yeah, it is challenging when, like I see a number of preps move up into grade one and you just want them to be able to keep flourishing and and doing Mm. really well at school, but they can struggle a little bit, but it's great to see those ones that you've actually put that little bit of extra work in to be able to assist them to move in. and, And that's a smooth sailing from there. Yeah, no, it's good. And in special education, in the school I work at, they often might stay with a teacher for two years or an ES staff might stay with them for two years. So that can be really like a double-edged sword sometimes whereby they have such like a good rapport and relationship. They understand the students so well and the strategies they've got are strong and they know their reinforcers and their interests and they're able to extend them and it's fantastic but then again, they become sometimes so dependent and like rigid in that. And then mm. that move after that second year can be like, it can be really hard, really challenging for them to go to someone else that, and no matter how much you coach that other teacher or that BS staff, you can't replicate that exactly like a hundred percent in another person. So yeah, it can be quite challenging then too. But when they go to that person, even after that one or second year, they're being with you and it has been successful. At, yeah, it's really nice. Yeah, excellent. So where did the passion for special education come from? Um, I think it came from, I keep talking about it, but from that community services subject and then the traineeship year. I never grew up having a sibling with additional needs or didn't really know anyone close to me that had additional needs at all. So it never came from that place of knowing it intimately within my home environment or environments that I'd spent time in growing up. But it was just the challenge, I think, always intrigued me. Like I did placement, obviously, in like different settings as everyone does as a teacher. And I went to, into early childhood. Um, I went into mainstream schools and then special ed at the end. But the mainstream school, it, like, and it's, it's never boring, but I kind of like felt like I needed to get up and do something all the time. Like I, but then like the teacher that I was with and the experience that I had was like, it was more sitting back. And I was like, oh, no, I can't do I can't do this. It wasn't active enough for me. It wasn't probably mentally stimulating enough at the time for me um, compared to that special education environment where I guess you're always at that hypervigilant alert, you're moving, you're making sure that like the whole dynamics just fluid in the classroom at all times. Yeah, it was just something that like drew me to special education. I guess the the hard work that it's hard work anywhere, but just that challenge was something that I really yeah really captivated me I think and then yeah in the school that I was working in um, in my traineeship year just the climate and culture like it was this very yeah that collective responsibility that like this because the child's in your room like doesn't mean that it's not everyone else's I guess not issue but everyone else's responsibility to make sure that child succeeds like we all need to work together or 
we're not going to see the results. So it was just the whole school climate. Yeah, the, the staff are really close and it's, yeah, you're able to lean on each other and you feel supported. I think bottom line is you feel supported in the, at the end of the day, which is really good. Which makes a challenging job a little bit easy if you feel like you've got that support and you've got those connections with other staff members you can work with. Yeah, exactly. And then I know you'll probably have heaps of tips and strategies here, Georgia, and you could keep going and talking about it, but what are some of your key teaching tips and strategies when it comes to teaching in special education and special education students? Yeah, of course. I'll give you a few tips. I won't go into too much depth, but I think the biggest tip is obviously like everyone talks about it in teaching, but relationships. The students know if you don't care about them, <laughs> they can read you like a book. They can tell by your response to things if you don't like them and they can tell. They need to know that you care, that you're there. And at the end of the day, they can confide in you because sometimes like in like with the children we work with, the school environment is their safe space. They're coming to their safe space. They're coming to that predictability, which is so important having a predictable environment for them. The routine like that we that we set for them is predictable. They know what's coming. We prepare them if something's different. They know that it's predictable and they can, I guess, rely on us. We're reliable. So therefore, like those three things, relationships, routine, predictability are my biggest tips if we can get that. Like visuals. Visuals are your best friend in special education. What we call like augmentative and alternative communication systems. So AAC is something that we use quite heavily in the special ed environment. So for our students that are non-vocal or any student, we often use different means of communication. So we have books that have visuals in them that are actually sorted according to categories and all of the categories are, I guess, linked by numbers. So they are able to communicate through this device, which is called a pod. So a pragmatic organization, dynamic display. So lots of words there, but the pod book is something that we have in all classrooms and most teachers wear, and we actually have interactive versions of them. So the students can go to page one and say to us, I've got more to say, and then they can go to, I want an activity or like activities. And then we go to the activities page and they can say to us, I want a swing. And it's all by pointing to a picture and flipping through a book. So having the visuals there is incredibly powerful because if these students don't have a voice, we're going to see major behaviours of concern because um, mm -hmm. they've got no way of telling us what they want and what they need. So tip visuals, paramount, you need those. And I think like the biggest thing I find in a special education environment too is that like we often have smaller class sizes. So we have probably eight to 10, sometimes 12 students in a class as well so we can get to know the students more intimately like as compared to probably a mainstream but obviously they can as well it's just probably takes a bit more time when you've got 20 23 or 26 kids but yeah I think just listening to them is the biggest thing like they are your biggest resource like to be able to work with them like they can mm. tell you so much and you can learn so much for them so I think just yeah listening to them is a big tip if you can yeah get that with them and that relationship and rapport but yeah visuals predictability routine relationships I would say no excellent uh, tips and strategies there Georgia and I guess involved in that as well as catering for students with individual differences is really important in special education so I guess what would be some of your key ways and strategies to find out like how each student needs to be then catered for? Yeah, of course. It's often 
yeah, it, it's a challenging space to be in sometimes because you've got so many students at so many different levels within, especially within special education, but obviously like when there's students with um, additional needs in a mainstream environment, I think the biggest thing is to collaborate with the people closest to them, which is often the parents or the carers. That's probably it. That's your gold there. If you can have a really good like student support group meeting with those people and yet talk to them and see what we can implement in our environment that works at home, how we can intimately cater for the student is the biggest thing. And if the student's able to is talk to them, like, (laughs) ask them like they're your biggest source of knowledge in terms of that so I think yeah asking them how they learn is the biggest thing if they can give you a response in any way they can and I think having if possible like a multidisciplinary approach is often really like something we are very lucky to have at the school I work at we have OTs we have speech pathologists and we also have a well-being we've got a well-being team as well where we have social workers and all of that as well and psychologists so ha- having that wider team to be able to bring to the table if you've got a student that has these additional needs and being able to source that knowledge from other people that are specialized in that field if you're lucky enough I know not all students have a multidisciplinary approach in a mainstream school but that's probably the biggest thing as well being able to yeah look through those different lenses for the student yeah so I think get those yeah collaborate with the people that are closest to them and being able to work within a team that has that expertise is really important if you're lucky enough to be able to do that and I think it's a really important comment you've made about communicating with the parents and and communicating with the student letting them have a voice but then also using the expertise that you actually have within your school and in your environment. Mm. Like you don't have to know everything and have to have every answer. The importance of asking questions and and getting that support from people around you. Yeah. And we often, we have at our school also like a handover document that we give to the next teacher, which has questions about what are their interests? Um, how do they best learn? What are you know, their favorite things, which that kind, that helps as well to give you, so you're not starting from scratch with these students. Um, so you can come in and be like, oh, I heard you like monster trucks <laughs> or like, you know, things like that just mm. to start that relationship. I found that really powerful because the yeah, previous teachers obviously spent 12 months with the student and has that depth of knowledge as well. So that's something that is pretty powerful in our environment. Yeah, excellent. And do you think the curriculum at the moment prepares your students for like the real life and 18 plus when they kind of leave your school? Um, I think obviously like depending on the student in a way, it it's we're really lucky now that we have that A to D curriculum within the Victorian curriculum. So that's pre-foundation level. So we use that a lot with our early years students to then bring them through the curriculum after that so that's been really beneficial to be able to have that resource for our students and use that to plan and to assess and have that there to teach which is great we like in our early years and middle years section we like have that I feel in my behavior analyst lens as well like the there's four essential skills that we really need to teach our students, one being communication, especially like we have non-vocal students and we have students that may find it really tricky to communicate. And when they're out in the community, you hope that they have a voice where they can ask for what they need and ask for what they want. So I think that communication and giving them a mode of communication before they leave the school that I'm at is really important. Being able to tolerate 
tolerate being denied access to things is really hard for our students. So um, toleration, like waiting in a line for your soft serve at McDonald's, like can be really hard for some people. And so you need to leave school being able to tolerate that or waiting in a doctor's surgery for an hour when the doctor's taking too long. Like that's a real life skill that we need to teach our children. Cooperation with others. There's going to be people in the world that you're not going to like, but we're going to have to cooperate and get through this together. I think that's really, really important that we need our students to leave school with that skill. And then obviously play and leisure skills as well to be able to use their interests and enjoy life and play with others in those early years is really those foundations, I believe, that our students need before they leave school. At our school, we also have like within our senior years unit, so they're in senior years for three years before they leave. They're currently studying the Victorian Pathway Certificate, so they come out with the VPC, and that has a like a very strong focus on project-based learning for our kids. They also do a program called SBATCH, which is where they go to work. So it's like a work readiness program and they'll go out and do factory work and things like that. So that prepares them for the real world. So I think we definitely have elements of that. I think we have like a space where like a really complex students need, like the curriculum probably doesn't hit the nail on the head for them in a way, like where that's independent living skills are a real focus, which is probably within the health and physical education side of the curriculum. It does, it is focused on there, but we probably need to focus on that a bit more. Like when they leave school, what is it that we want them to be able to do? And that's Mm. something we ask our parents in an SSG meeting, parents or carers for the student is, what do you see the long-term goal being? What would you love your child to be able to do when they leave this school? Like, and then have those small incremental smart goals to get them there is really important. So I think, yeah, the curriculum, it, it, it does. And I think it, it is tricky when we have class sizes of 10, 12 students to really focus on those things and teach them really authentically. But I think we're really getting there, which is really exciting too. So yeah, I think it it's there. I think it depends obviously on the child and the complexity of the child, as well as to what we prioritize and how we teach it for that child like all of our students have an individual education plan that we write in collaboration with the parents and carers as well so that really sets it up and we link that to the curriculum so that sets that student up to be able to achieve these goals semesterly and then move throughout their schooling and hopefully leave the school that I work at in a position where they can go to a day program they can go to the supermarket and buy the um, groceries they need they can make their bed, they can cook their dinner for that night. So it's thinking outside of the box, thinking, can they cross the street safely? Like it's all of those things for our students that we need to consider. Yeah, excellent. And I think, yeah, fantastic things that you're covering in the curriculum there. And I think it's wonderful. And I know your school does heaps of life skill activities to prepare the students for the real world, as you were just saying before, Georgia. Can you tell me about some of the things that your school does and why is it really important? I know you mentioned some of it just before, but yeah, tell me about some of the real life kind of skills that you do at your school. Yeah, of course. So we have within our like schedules or our, I guess, teaching plans, we have to have an allocated community access session. So we go out on the bus as a group. We do travel training with our students being safe on a bus situation, going out to supermarkets, going out to playgrounds, going out to different community settings um, that our students would access and then practicing the skills that are needed to be safe in those environments and to be able to participate in those environments effectively. So that's really important for our students to get out and get into the community. And it really shows us 
what we need to teach them next. It's a real life assessment, mm. um, which is really good that we can see, yeah, what is the skill that they need to be taught to do that successfully. So we do, yeah, what we call community access. We also do a cooking program. So we have a cooking session every week as well, where the students in the community access often buy the groceries that they need and then they'll cook the meal as well in another session so that gives them the skills to hopefully be able to cook a meal independently and then be able to do that in that outside world as well so they love cooking program because they get lunch on that day that's provided a hot meal um, so they get quite excited about that so that's really good as well we also have a mini woolies at our school which is very exciting so that got established this year so the students can go in put the aprons on they've got a little basket and then someone can be at the cash register and they're practicing looking at the price and they've got their wallets and they can pay and exchange the money so that gives them that real world experience but in a controlled setting which is really something really great for our early years kids as well like to start there and like that's where we can teach the skills and then generalize to our supermarket in the community so um, yeah we're really really lucky to have that as well so yeah it gives us the opportunity to branch out from I guess your average like literacy numeracy lessons and give them that yeah real world taste of the real world and throw them out there and see how they go so it's yeah really exciting to do those things. No, I think it's wonderful all the different things you're doing and going out of the school and having those real life opportunities is fantastic. But yeah, I was I was glad you mentioned about like your mini woolies because mm. I got to see all the photos and uh, all that the other day. And I thought that's just fantastic and what a wonderful idea and a great opportunity for your students to have as well. Yeah, no, it's so exciting for them. They were very pumped to see it and walk through it. And yeah, now that we're beginning to start using it now I think that yes really seeing the benefits of it so it's yeah it's really exciting and we're very lucky to have that opportunity as a school too so yeah no excellent and do you think there needs to be any major changes that need to happen to special ed curriculum I know you were talking about that a little bit before as well so if you're in charge is there anything you'd change Oh, never put me in charge. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, no not, not like there's nothing major I would change change up really I think having that A to D curriculum now is a really great step forward and it's given us yeah as a school something that we can really get yeah, base our lessons on and be really planned and really authentic in what we're producing for our children and step them through I guess the developmental milestones and those different steps to get to that foundation level which is yeah super exciting so there's not any major changes I would say I would say like we've probably been through a shift as a school where like we had a really strong focus on independent living and uh, not that we didn't teach literacy and numeracy because that came into the independent living side and was all integrated as well but we probably function similar to a mainstream school in terms of delivering the curriculum like we teach a phonics lesson and we teach a writing lesson we teach maths we do all of that as well so I think there's been like a shift from like really strong independent living skills focus to then really strong curriculum based focus. And then I think we're starting now to merge the two really well to having that marry really well. So that we're teaching our students all of the essential skills that they are going to need before leaving the school that I'm working at. So nothing majorly I would change if that's the bottom line, but and really exciting that we are making steps in the right direction as well. I think that's wonderful. And then you were talking about being a behavior analyst now, and you talked about your principal kind of encouraged you to do it. But I guess in the end, why did you decide to do this study and go down and do your master's and then be certified now as a behavior analyst? Yeah, my 
title for myself is I call myself a baby BCBA because I'm only a year out. But I think when I was in like my grand year of teaching and had a few students that did have some challenging behaviors of concern, I thought, and I was making positive progress with these students. It wasn't like it was failing completely. Um, We were making small steps in the right direction, but I thought there like must be a better way. Like I must, like I'm kind of flying by the seat of my pants at the moment. Like this is something I'm just like trialing different things and I'm throwing things out there and some things are working and some things aren't, but I was, didn't have a systematic way of, I guess, yeah, decreasing behaviors of concern, but teaching these students the skills they need to obviously access the things they're wanting to access through the behavior of concern at the moment. I, there must've been a way I could do that more systematically, more effectively. So it probably came from a place of frustration in a way, mm. which, um, yeah, which sounds a bit silly, but it, yeah, I was probably yeah a little bit frustrated that I couldn't make the significant change that I probably wanted to make at the time. Yeah. And human behavior always like intrigued me. Like I liked watching people, like people watching, like, why are they doing that? Like what is reinforcing that behavior? Like it's um, something that I've probably always been in the back of my mind doing in everyday life. And as I said, psychology as well, that was the subject I really loved. But you're just a behavior analyst was just a job. I'm like, that would never be boring. <laughs> that yeah. would never be, that'd be a never a boring day being a behavior analyst. And it would, it would challenge me. And, and I found like, even though I was only like first, second year out and then obviously going through uni, I don't know, like it's sometimes in schools, like sometimes the challenging students may have always been put with me. <laughs> I'm like, they're always, I found I gra- they gravitated to me and I really enjoyed the challenge of it as well. So, and yeah, seeing those, yeah, the results from that was really exciting as well. So yeah, just, I'm just like, there must be a better way. And I think like a science, a behavior science, systematic approach is the way to go forward. So it was, um, yeah, really, yeah, clear path, I thought, for me to go down. Yeah, excellent. And then I guess for people who don't know, what is a behavior analyst? What do you do? And what can you do to support school, students, teachers and everything like that? Uh, yeah, board certified behavior analysts, we work We work in a variety of settings. So there's behavior analysts don't necessarily just work with schools. They often will work in homes as well, NDIS um, roles and funded, work with agency clinics. BCBAs can also work in sporting clubs. Like often they could be in the AFL. They could be working with a tennis player. So they can work in a variety of settings um, with different people it doesn't necessarily have to be with street like younger people they can also work with in aged care homes with people with dementia we can often see bcbas working there so we often we work with people to teach new skills or change existing behaviors of concern so we want those behaviors of concern to decrease and we want the skill acquisition to increase so when a student or a person is engaging in behaviors of concern it's accessing some type of reinforcement there is something that is making this behavior happen again for this person. It feels good for them or they're receiving something that's good or the attention's good. Like it could be a multiple things that are reinforcing that behavior of concern, but something is. And it's how do we teach that person to access that same reinforcement, but in a socially appropriate way. We want to teach them a socially appropriate skill. So that is essentially what a BCBA does. And then we, yeah, so we often work with others who work probably to implement the behavior analytic intervention. It's not necessarily us implementing it all the time. We're often working within a school setting or with carers or with parents in a home environment as well. So we'll often write, we'll go in, 
often observe behaviors of concern in a natural environment. We'll take data on that. We wanna see how frequently it's occurring, the severity, the duration, get a baseline on how it's looking at the moment. Um, then we'll often write a plan to then teach more socially appropriate skills within that environment um, for that person. So yeah, it's challenging and it's exciting and it's um, something that yeah, keeps you on the edge of your seat. So you, yeah, you're basically working to analyze behavior patterns in people and then yet yeah, you're wanting that person to thrive. So the plan is often you're working with the families and often the person that is engaging the behavior of concern as well, because you want to get their voice in that and whether the plan that you do write is something that they do want to engage with and participate in. So that's in a nutshell what a BCBA does. In terms of a school environment, we often come in as like a consulting role often so we'll often be or a coaching role so some will come in for individual students so we have some NDIS funded come into a school environment for students particular students that they might be working with as well in the home environment to support the implementation of that plan is what we would do um, and to work with the people closest to them and the student themselves to give them those I guess strategies to work with the child after um, I guess observing them intimately and working with them intimately and knowing them so well, um, being able to then yeah, have a team approach as well in the school environment um, is something that we would do in our role as well. So yeah, within my coaching role at the moment, that's what I do. I work, I go in if there's a student that's flagged with me that data-wise, so if the teacher's putting in a few um, incident reports, then that's flagged with me and I will then go in and support the teacher in implementing a behaviour support plan with that environment. Yeah, wonderful. And as you said, I think it is really fascinating and really interesting. I think what a great role you've got and a great opportunity to yeah continue just to build yourself up as a behaviour analyst, but then also help and assist yourself as a, as a teacher as well. Mm. Um, and to be able to mentor so many other teachers and educators at your school as well. I think it's, I think it's wonderful and a great role. Yeah, no, it's really good. And I do like being on the ground, if that makes sense. So I'm not coming in as a necessarily a higher authority, like I'm still doing a day a week in the classroom. I'm still yet yeah, teaching as well. So I think that's really beneficial that I'm not just coming in from no knowledge base and giving you this beautiful plan that's going to take, you know, that's the year to implement and you've got 20 other kids on there that you've got to attend to. I think that's the biggest thing that I know, the challenges and how hard it can be. So making it realistic for the teacher involved and for the ES staff and for that student and making it achievable is really important because I could write the best plan, but if you're not able to implement it, what's the point? So it's, yeah, getting buy-in and being able to yeah, collaboratively work as a team. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think you've got that understanding of being able to, and you've been in that environment for a number of years, you have that understanding of where the teachers are and the amount of workload they've got to do and all that kind of mm. thing to be able to put in the plan to make it more successful. Yeah, exactly. So what does the role look like at your school? And I guess also what would you like the role to maybe look like in the future as well? Yeah, so at the moment, the behaviour and inclusion coach role looks like I support the implementation of our school-wide PBS system. So I do, we have a PBS behaviour support team. So I work with the PBS team leader. And then we also have a behaviour therapist at our school, which is very exciting. So I, we, I collaboratively work with her 
to be able to support the students that we work with that um, maybe are displaying what we call tier three behaviours of concern within the school-wide positive behaviour support framework. So any student that has six or more incident reports or referrals will get to within that tier, but they can move in and out of the tiers. So if they're displaying a tier three behaviour of concern, we work with them and, and that's really as a PBS team, what we do there, which is yeah, really good. I do classroom level support and coaching as a class wide. If we find that there's a class that might need a bit of extra support, not necessarily one individual student, but there might be a cohort that might be quite challenging. So I'll go in and support the teacher in that, which is yeah, really good to be able to do a class wide yeah, support system. And then the way that we are starting to move with this role is implementing a what we call a practical functional assessment and then skills-based teaching. So with our students that are displaying these tier three complex behaviours of concern that are posing a safety risk to themselves or others, we're trying this, I guess we call it, a, it's, a, it's a program. It is a program, but it's evidence-based program created by Dr. Greg Hanley from um, America. He actually has created it with his FTF consulting team, evidence-based. So what we do in this program is we would, a practical functional assessment is being able to turn the behavior on and off, but not to severe levels. We don't want to see the student become unsafe to themselves or unsafe to others because that is unethical and we don't want to do that in any environment, but especially within a school environment. So we try our best to provide the student with everything they could possibly want in a room. So it could be an iPad with a bubble machine and depending on the student that's individual, we'll try and fill a room with all of those things that they may want. And then we will take them away, say it's time to finish, let's go. And if the student shows precursor behaviours or what we call warning signs, we will give everything back to them. We'll say, no, no, you can have what you want. And then if that means we've turned it off and on, and if we can do that five times, we look at that as having what we call functional control. We know that we can turn that behavior on and off safely in yep. a safe way. And then we use that room with everything they want, or it could be outside. I'm doing it with a student at the moment and it's outside jumping on the trampoline. So we're jumping on the trampoline together, but it could be anywhere. But we try, we use that context to then teach them skills. So everything they want, we will teach them to ask for my way after that. So after we turn it on and off five times, we'll say, oh, it's time to finish. And then we will teach them a my way response. So it might be a tap, a double tap to the chest. It could be a verbal my way. It could be a card. And then we will give everything back to them. So they're not using the behavior of concern anymore. They're using the appropriate response. They're using that communication response to get it. Then we gradually teach them a tolerance response, um, which is them tolerating not getting their way. Um, and then we gradually teach them. We keep building it out to get them to the table and being ready to learn. And then they get everything they want. And then being to the table, ready to learn, and maybe one task at the table. And then they get everything they want again. So it's a, it's it's a new it's a new way of working compared to historic behavior analysis practices and ABA. But it it just focuses on safety, rapport building with that child and dignity like it's an open door policy if they want to leave they can if they walk out that tells us their context isn't what they want like they're, they're not reinforcing enough they don't like it they can leave so that's really exciting so we're actually starting that program with we did it with a student in 2021 we started it and then we're starting again with a different student at the moment but we're seeing yet yeah, really really good results and it's 
yeah, it's just, it's it's a really interesting seeing the like it's you're building a relationship from scratch with a lot of the children that I'm working with, and we're implementing it ourselves, not the teachers in the classroom. It is external program, which will then generalize to the classroom when it's safe to do so. But it's yeah, really giving us an opportunity to not start from scratch because a lot of these students have a long history of practicing these behaviors to get what they want. So it's a, it's giving us a chance to be able to. Yeah, they're getting everything they want, but we can slowly do it and safely in an appropriate way. So that's what we hope the role is going to be, that we will do this as a team with the students that we're finding, yeah, quite challenging in our environment. And that will give them a voice and give and give them a chance to be able to learn the essential skills for living that they currently don't have. So hopefully the role goes that way. Yeah. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah, no, I love it. As I said, I was just enthralled listening and I think it's all very fascinating and all really interesting, everything you were discussing there. So um, yeah, all the best with that and look forward to seeing how it goes there, Georgia. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's a really exciting space to be in for our students. And I think it's something that, like it's kind of not the answer, but it's a, it's a program that I think is giving us more, how do, how do I put it, more results quickly. I guess, mm. then we would in a, in a classroom environment, if we can get this nailed within a um, behavior support team that I work in and then generalize that to the classroom safely. It's, I'm like super excited to see where that can go for the students that currently find it really challenging to be in a classroom space. Yeah, no, excellent. And then how has completing your study and your master's helped you as a teacher? Oh, in so many ways, <laughs> in so many ways. I think it's helped me be very objective about behaviors of concern, not take them personally, like always thinking about the why, like why is this happening? Like is there, there's something that is happening underlying that is reinforcing this. It constantly keeps my mind ticking and every day constantly asking myself questions, which is really good and challenging myself and my own knowledge. And yeah, it's really helped me, I guess, develop my, I guess my practices with individual like obviously every student is an individual student but um, being able to be really targeted in the way that I deliver I guess an education program to students and it's just helped I guess in a way to not sweat the small stuff if that makes sense mm. like yeah looking at the bigger picture and yeah it's really like it's yeah opened my perspective a little bit like sometimes you can feel like you're in a bit of a rut and you're not getting anywhere but I feel like it's really opened my eyes to seeing the small incremental successes that you do get on a daily basis that you forget to celebrate like at the end of the day you, probably, you think of the 20 things that happened wrong instead of the three major things that were really exciting so it's yeah it's helped me in many many different ways but yeah, and it's all been for the better. I, yeah, we wouldn't go back and change it and do something different. It's definitely something that's really refined my teaching and the way that I practice it. Yeah, no, excellent. I think you made a really important comment about actually reflecting on the positive things that have happened through the day and those little improvements that you get. I think, mm -hmm. as you're saying, I think, unfortunately, teachers' mindset sometimes is always about what lesson didn't go well or how I didn't deal with this very well or something like that. But it's taken me a little while as well to do this. But yeah, really thinking about those positive moments you've had and those little successes you have and how that's going to help in maybe three, four weeks time. Mm. It's not going to be all done today as you were discussing about before as well. Yeah, exactly. Don't sweat the small stuff either. Choose your battles. Yeah. That's my, that's my mantra as well. Choose your battles because it's, it's, you don't want to fight them all. That's for sure. 
No, that is a very good point there. Yeah. yeah. Um, and if a teacher asked you for support around a student's behaviour, and I know like all students' behaviours are different and everything like that. However, what would be some of your top tips to make changes or modifications to a student's behaviour? Yeah, of course. I think like one powerful strategy to change it is behaviour-specific praise is really important. You probably hear lots of people talk about this, but being really um, intentional about the way that you do give feedback to students and praise and that being yet very clear and labelled and giving them an opportunity to be recognised and being authentic in that. Like they understand if you just say, oh, you did such a great job or I really love how you opened the door for Sammy. That was like so respectful. I really like appreciate you doing that. Like they understand the authentic to the, oh, they just said that because they have to. So I think being like really intentional in the way that we do give that is really important. The other thing that I often think about and talk about with teachers is do you know what makes them happy, relaxed and engaged. And that's something that Greg Hanley talks about in the PFA SBT process that I was talking about before, is he talks about HRE. Do you know what makes them happy, relaxed and engaged? If you had to give them something that would light their world on fire, what would it be? So I think those three things have been something that I always come back to. Like, can we make them happy, relaxed and engaged? Because if we can, that gives us a platform to teach them. Um, so that's something that I often talk about with teachers is what does that look like for that child, happy, relaxed and engaged? It might not be sitting at a table and doing learning at first. It's often going to be maybe something else, but that gives us a bit of a platform to be like, okay, I think we know what our, the reinforcers might be and a reinforcer being something that we deliver after a behaviour to increase the likelihood of it happening again. So that's something like we talk about a lot with at the school and the um, support that I provide and yet catch them being good and acknowledge it. Like that's, it's simple, but it's like sometimes like when you have a child that might be really like taxing or complex and you feel like you're not making much progress there, you often don't see the small stuff sometimes. Like you don't actually, it might be happening, but it's really hard to catch. So being like eyes peeled on the small stuff and that might be just having like a skill of the week that you're, wanting to focus on for that child that that's just focusing on one thing that you want to catch them being good at and like even like what we call like approximations like they might not have to be doing it 100% correct but at least they nearly got there so let's reinforce that so next time they'll go a little bit further and a little bit further like it doesn't have to be like oh gosh I want them like in a special ed environment might be really tricky for this child to sit at a table that might be the end goal but they might have got closer to the chair and then, okay, let's reinforce that. No, they might be gradually sitting on the chair, not at the table, but it's somewhere else doing something they enjoy. Let's reinforce that. And as that long-term goal of him sitting at the table might be a year away, but we're getting there. Like we're starting to make progress. So I think reinforcing those approximations when we see it, and we have to have those lenses on to be able to see it. And the other thing I often talk about with teachers is providing choices. And controlled choices. It doesn't have to be like, it's obviously not do whatever you want. It's like, okay, we're doing phonics. Would you like to sit at the table in the bean bag or at that like, desk over there? Like giving controlled choice within a task or within a session for these students gives them that empowerment. Like we want them to learn through being, feeling empowered as well. So I think, yeah, controlled choice is something we often find like just that little strategy can really change a student's willingness to have a go because if the yeah and and obviously that relationship building and the teachers are 
often always have this that I work with like they've oft always got the relationship there already but if they don't have that relationship the student's not going to challenge it's not going to they're not going to feel comfortable to make a mistake if that makes sense so yeah so I think if that makes <laughs> like I've jumbled a little bit but yeah I think that's the, the key things that I would first say to a teacher when consulting with them as well. No, I think they're actually fantastic and wonderful tips there, Georgia. I think you spoke very well and gave some really good things. I love the one about what are the things that keep a student like happy, relaxed and engaged. I think that's fantastic. Mm. And I think as you're saying, like all teachers should know for every single student that they are teaching, like those three things are really important. Mm. Um, so I was writing that down as you were saying that. So <laughs> I thought that was that was wonderful. So no, great stuff there. And then what would be some goals and aims that you've got for the future for your career? My career, yeah. I I think this my career so far has been so fast paced. It's nice to be in a space where, okay, now I'm at a position with my career that I can stay within this role and continue to, I guess, be a better BCBA. I guess as a baby BCBA, as I call myself, I think just having never stopping learning and have challenging myself every day and working with other multidisciplinary professionals and being able to collaborate and continue to evolve with the different students that I work with is something that I always aim for myself. I don't want to just stop and be stagnant in my career. And my real goal is to implement this practical functional assessment and skills-based teaching process in a school and having it in a special education setting it's something that's new to Australia and I think we were one of the first schools in Victoria to implement it in 2021 so I think having this yes safe dignified televisable as they say process that we can use with these students that have complex behaviors of concern is really exciting and that's a goal for me to be able to have this as a process that we can continually use with our students that might be the students in the end of the day that might get suspended one day or they might not they might disengage from our schooling system but if we can get this process happening and I guess like learn by listening to them learn by creating joy in their HRE and then empowering them and then teaching them the skills when like after that after we meet all those steps is really exciting so I hope that that is the what we can do in the special education system in Victoria and yet first at the school that I work at and hopefully branch out one day but yeah they're my main goals. Yeah I love those I can see you're doing that for sure I know how and I've only known you for a short amount of time Georgia but I know your passion and your commitment and how hard working you are and I think all the listeners will be able to pick that up as well today so I can see you achieving all those for sure. Yeah I hope so fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> and what's one teaching resource you couldn't live without Georgia? Oh, I wrote a few down, actually. I wrote three down. And um, the first was... I'll, um, uh, I'll, I'll change the question then. I'll say <laughs> three teaching resources. You can't yeah. Go for it. Three resources. Um, first, I wrote, as I talked about earlier, the communication systems that we use, especially like within the special education setting. You can't get anywhere without them. You often find yourself in a situation where you don't have one and you're like, oh, like I really need my pod is what we say. So any communication system, visual, visual schedule, any of that, I can't live without that. I couldn't live without board maker. Now this is a program that we make our visuals on. So it has all of the symbols. Um, so I use that daily board maker. It's a great tool that I wouldn't be used probably in mainstream, but it's something we use heavily in special education. Um, so you can look up anything, like you could look up Kit Kat chocolate and it will come up with a picture of Kit Kat chocolate and you can put it on a card 
or swing or drink or anything. It's really individualized and it's automatic and you can just make any resource you need at the time. And the last one I had was a timer, any form of timer, interactive timer, sand timer, electronic timer, any timer in a special ed environment is like gold. Like it, it gives prior warning. It's like it's lead up to a transition to be able to prime the students. It is essential. So I think any form of timer is a resource that I couldn't live without. I use it probably daily if not hourly if not by the five minutes <laughs> love, love that I think those three yeah fantastic ones so I'll accept the three even though I said one I'll accept the three Georgia it's yeah. all, all sorry, I didn't actually read three. the question specifically I just realized it said one I'm so sorry <laughs> no I love it I think that's great no three great ones there and I think yeah really good ones for the environment that you're in so that's perfect I'm more than happy to accept more than one so that's fine and before we finish Georgia are you happy to play a little game of course, I wasn't expecting this one. Yes, I will definitely play a game. <laughs> well, this one is called Todd's Stock Exchange. So you can either, oh. I'm going to say a word, and you can either buy it, means you get around yep. it, hold it, you're a little bit unsure, or sell it, you don't get around it at all. Okay, all right. So Let's there go. we go. You ready yeah. to go? Yeah, I think so. Rightio, first one is a staff meeting. Do you buy, hold, or sell it? Oh, hold, they are quite, they are important times yeah <laughs> i'll hold it <laughs> uh what about yard duty buy hold sell oh no i'd sell yard duty yeah, yeah fair enough <laughs> what about a chisel tip whiteboard marker buy hold sell i'd buy that for sure yeah good job essential uh what about professional learning buy hold sell oh i'd buy that yeah i think it's yeah definitely required i often Professional learning we do at our school is often very targeted, which is good, needed. Excellent. What about the staff room environment? Buy, hold, sell? Oh, yeah, buy. Yep, we've got a good, yep, staff room culture is great. Excellent, yep. love that. <laughs> yeah. What about tin tuna in the staff room? Buy, hold, sell? Oh, buy, that is, I eat that every day for lunch. Tuna, tub of microwave wool rice and steam fresh veggies <laughs> every day of <laughs> that i'm not sure probably the people around you would always love that georgia no but... probably not no but that's okay <laughs> <laughs> what about a wet day timetable buy hold sell oh sell that the last two days have been shocking time i'm selling it get rid of it <laughs> fair enough probably picked a good time to ask that question yeah <laughs> what about hoarding coffee cups in your classroom and then bringing them back to like the staff room on a friday buy hold sell oh sell no yeah i've got many coffee cups in my room and then i've got ones from home that i keep and i get told off by my partner that i don't bring them back so <laughs> oh it's very embarrassing <laughs> love it what about special education buy hold sell yeah buy needed essential and what about a behavior analyst buy hold sell buy very valuable person you need in your life <laughs> love it and i thought that would be the response to that one so no well done georgia i'm going to give you the win so well done Yes, always wanted to win something. Thank, thanks, Todd. <laughs> okay. And that's actually the end of the podcast, Georgia. So I just want to say thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. It was awesome hearing about your career and everything you've done so far in special education and now what you're doing as a behaviour analyst as well. I think it's wonderful and I think everyone will be able to pick up your, your passion and your commitment and how hardworking you are. And I think 
the school is very lucky to have you, but I think more importantly, the kids have been so lucky to have you uh, in their lives and having you as an educator for them and as a behavior analyst as well. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on to the Toddcast today and yeah, keep up the amazing work you're doing. Oh, thanks very much, Todd. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate being able to give this perspective within your podcast, the teacher podcast. I think like special education is not something that everyone knows about. So if you ever near a special education school, have a professional practice day, I really advocate for people to go in and maybe volunteer or observe in that space because I think it's something that not everyone knows what happens within it and the things that I guess could be then implemented in a mainstream school as well. So um, yeah, thank you so much as well for giving me the platform. No, my pleasure. It was great having you on and yeah, all the best for the rest of the year. Thanks so much. You too. See you later. See ya. And that is the end of the 51st episode of the Toddcast, the Teacher Podcast. It was wonderful having Georgia come on today and sharing all her knowledge around special education, but also as her role as a behaviour analyst as well. I found it extremely insightful and interesting, and I got so much out of it as well, both for special education, but also many strategies you can also use in the mainstream schools as well. Hopefully you got a lot out of it as well, and I cannot wait for you to join me in two weeks' time for the next episode of the Toddcast. See you later.